BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. The Bowery Boys, episode 123, The History of Trump. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young without Tom Myers this week. I'm not doing these solo shows so much anymore, but I'm only doing them for special occasions, especially on topics that are, shall we say, relevant to breaking news events. Now, this podcast is being released in late April 2011. I just have to date mark this. And at this moment, celebrity millionaire developer Donald Trump is one of the leading candidates for the Republican nomination to run for president of the United States. And he's been saying some rather outlandish things, I guess you'd say. And as a result, in typical Trump fashion, is dominating the media coverage. Some of you, most of you, are probably totally sick of him. And you're probably thinking, I'm not sure if I even want to sit and listen to you talk about him. But I'm putting politics aside here, or trying my best to, and giving you some trivia on Donald Trump and the Trump empire for your coffee clutches and your cocktail parties this weekend. Because behind that gold-plated late 80s glamour that is the Trump empire is a meat-and-bone story of New York City history and a family saga that began in Manhattan's Lower East Side over 110 years ago. This also happens to be a story about the development of Queens, Brooklyn, and Manhattan in the 20th century. How Donald and his home builder father, Fred Trump, aided and occasionally hindered the growth of various neighborhoods throughout the city. Woodhaven, Queens, Coney Island, the Upper West Side. If you're interested in any of these parts of New York, you'll want to stick around. Essentially, I will try my best to answer the unanswerable question, where on earth did this man come from? And what's the story behind branding everything in sight, like the world's wealthiest graffiti artist? Starting, of course, with his best-known self-named skyscraper, Trump Tower, which rises high over Fifth Avenue at 68 floors. Or is that 58 floors? That icon of 80s glamour, Trump Tower, is located on the rather fancy corner of 56th Street and 5th Avenue, right next to Tiffany's, 
and features that big public space that's dripping in brass and pink marble and a cascading waterfall. The building is 58 floors, or as Donald calls it, 68 floors. Because honestly, who said you had to start counting at one, right? Exaggeration is a Trump hallmark. But the beginning of the Trump story starts modestly five miles south of Trump Tower at Castle Clinton, or as they called it back in the 1880s, Castle Garden, the former fortress that served as the city's immigration station before the days of Ellis Island. In October of 1885, a 16-year-old boy stepped off a boat here to begin a new life. His name was Friedrich Drumpf, a boy quite a long way from home, from the ancient wine region of the Rhineland country in Germany. He had arrived here in New York to live with his sister in their small apartment on Forsyth Street in the Lower East Side. He began working as an assistant in a barber's shop. Now, some of you might find that kind of interesting, considering his grandson, Donald Trump, would one day be known for his distinctive hairstyle. Drumpf didn't stay in New York very long. He went out west to make his fortune, way, way out west, to the new and rather wild settlements of Seattle in western Canada during the Great Klondike Gold Rush, a frenzy that lured thousands to the region looking to get rich. Now, Drumpf didn't make much from finding gold himself, but rather from operating restaurants and boarding houses there. By his 30th birthday, Friedrich had acquired enough wealth to return back to New York. By this time now, a metropolis with five expansive boroughs. He'd also changed his name by then, too. Thank you, because I can barely pronounce it. From Drumpf to Trump. Or as Donald himself said, quote, Drumpf Tower doesn't sound nearly as catchy, unquote. In 1907, he settled his family down on Jamaica Avenue in the neighborhood of Woodhaven, Queens. Now, this is a very different Queens than the one we know today, of course. It was the least populated borough, but with the most open space. Trump's property was near the old Union Course racetrack, where horse-race-loving New Yorkers came to amuse themselves in the 19th century. Now, this would prove to be a very savvy purchase, one of dozens of great scores in the Trump family history. I should interrupt here and just say that in Donald Trump's glitzy autobiography, The Art of the Deal, he claims that his grandfather Friedrich was Swedish. In fact, during the years of World War I, the family most likely tried to pass off as another nationality to curb the discrimination being faced by other German immigrants at this time. Unfortunately, it was during this period, in 1918, that Friedrich Trump died of influenza, leaving behind his widow Elizabeth and four children, including young Fred Trump. Now, little Fred would have been 12 years old at the time, and after graduating from high school, began a career as a home builder, starting with that very property in Woodhaven and the nearby neighborhoods of Jamaica and Hollis. At the start, it was a very modest technique. He built one house, sold it, and with the profits of that house, built another one. It was in this way that Fred Trump very slowly became a well-known builder in Queens, which by the 1920s, Queens was the place to be, with the opening of the Queensboro Bridge, the extension of the Long Island Railroad, and the construction of the elevated trains into Queens at this time, the borough was experiencing a population explosion, mostly those escaping Manhattan's crowded neighborhoods and families who just wanted to experience such luxuries as, say, windows, or a garage, or privacy. In the early 1930s, during the throes of the Great Depression, Trump briefly switched to operating a Woodhaven supermarket. Not only was Trump Market the first of dozens of future establishments to be branded with the name Trump, it was also one of the first modern grocery stores. 
Serve yourself and save, proclaimed his advertisement. It was kind of revolutionary for the time. It was a place where customers picked their own items up for purchase instead of having products behind a counter that the clerk had to go and retrieve. You see, the things that we take for granted this world, picking up actual items in a supermarket is one of them. Now, the awful economy during this time actually produced an excellent opportunity for Trump. When President Roosevelt, in one of his New Deal programs, created the Federal Housing Administration in 1934, which provided mortgage relief for prospective home buyers and, equally as important, support to home builders. Trump went right back into the housing business in a flurry, in specific developing into sparsely populated regions of Brooklyn, radically transforming neighborhoods in the process, such as he did by building 450 homes just in East Flatbush alone. Throughout the 30s and 40s, his Trump holding company produced thousands of homes, sometimes called Trump bungalows for their quaint little compact design, these two-story structures with a garage on the ground floor and a walk up to the front door on the second. Now, Trump didn't create this style by any means, but he certainly excelled in it. And if you're walking through almost any Brooklyn neighborhood today, you honestly, you can't throw a stone without hitting one of these houses. Not that I suggest you throw stones at other people's houses, but they're all over the place and very distinctive to Brooklyn. The newspaper, The Brooklyn Eagle, was soon calling him, quote, the Henry Ford of home building industry. And soon he branched out into large scale apartment complexes in South Brooklyn, places he not only developed, but places where he could, you know, collect a little rent on the side. Trump's own family, with his new Scottish wife and their young children, moved into a sumptuous home in the Queens neighborhood of Jamaica Estates. This was a house with 23 rooms. But of course, that's a mere pittance of rooms, a peasant shack compared to what his son Donald would later build. In the late 1950s, Fred Trump embarked on his most ambitious project at the highest profile location yet, Coney Island. The land in question that he was interested in was the grounds that once contained Luna Park, that glorious turn-of-the-century amusement park, which had burned down during the 1940s. With the assistance of Robert Moses and his newfound authority of building public housing, Trump achieved in building his largest-scale complex to date, called Trump Village. Today, it's one of the least interesting structures in the Coney Island skyline, but that's how they were being built back in the day. But Trump wasn't quite done besmirching the memories of theme parks past. He soon acquired the land beneath another theme park, Steeplechase Park, in 1964. Now, this park had just recently closed, and its amusements were still on the property. Trump bought it and then planned to build a low-cost housing complex there. He fought with the city to rezone the land, and once actually threatened to rip down the famous parachute jump, which is, of course, still there today and is a landmarked object. Eventually, in September of 1966, he spitefully tore everything down. The parachute jump's still there. He tore everything down with a lavish, press-invited funeral party with champagne, pretty girls in bikinis, and a bulldozer. So the park was entirely wiped away. But Trump didn't actually ever do anything with the land. It sat abandoned and fenced in until 1968 when he sold it back to the city and at a rather handsome profit. Now, the year he tore steeplechase down in 1966, his son Donald Trump was 20 years old. Donald Trump was born in Queens and by age 20 was the product of an upstate military school. And after considering a career in film school, perhaps no surprise, got an education at Fordham University in the Bronx and the University of Pennsylvania. Donald had the same interests as his father, but at far loftier aims. 
or to quote Donald on his own father, quote, he did very well building rent control and rent stabilized housing in Queens and Brooklyn, but it was a very tough way to make a buck, unquote. Donald's aim was Manhattan. So after cutting his teeth on a property that his father owned in Ohio, Donald moved into a bachelor studio on 75th and 3rd Avenue in 1971 and began dreaming of projects of his own while overseeing his father's, all under the name of this newly created Trump Organization. In 10 years, Donald Trump would be the hottest developer in town. The key to his success in the 1970s is really kind of simple. First of all, he had his father's money as backing, and more importantly, and his father's bank connections and business connections, many of those who had moved on to City Hall and, and up to Albany in the governor's office. Secondly, Donald Trump was very unmistakable, very flamboyant. He would wear brightly colored suits, slightly obnoxious, but tenacious and very confident, with an almost supernatural ability to spin negative situations into pluses for himself. He could schmooze him up, and he could irritate people just as easily. As future Mayor Ed Koch later said, quote, I must be doing something right if Donald Trump is squealing like a stuck pig, unquote. But most importantly, he was looking to develop during the midst of a dour financial situation in New York. In the 1970s, the city was nearly bankrupt, with skyrocketing crime rates and a dwindling population. So whether Trump's vision for Manhattan was driven by ego or wealth, the point is... He saw opportunity where few would have looked or even dared to go at the time. It was kind of a rocky beginning at first. In 1973, the Justice Department sued the Trump Organization over allegations that Trump-owned properties discriminated against black tenants. Now, this suit settled out of court two years later. But more importantly, it was this suit that introduced Trump to one of his favorite lawyers, the infamous power attorney, Roy Cohn, once known as Joseph McCarthy's chief counsel, and now, by this time, the lawyer of choice for New York's richest and most famous. One fascination of Trump's was to develop the old West Side 34th Street train yards of the old Penn Station Railroad, the merged transportation company of Pennsylvania Railroad and New York Central, a company that had recently just gone bankrupt. Trump envisioned at first a slew of condos there, and then later envisioned a convention center, which at one point he had dubbed Miracle Center in a very lively press conference in reference to the film Miracle on 34th Street. In the end, he didn't get the train yards project, but a convention center would eventually be built there. Today, it's the Jacob Javits Convention Center. Donald's first true personal success came at Grand Central Terminal, or actually next door to Grand Central Terminal, in the form of the old Commodore Hotel, one of the area's fine old hotels that had been built in 1919, catering to commuters and named, of course, for the Commodore, Cornelius Vanderbilt. But by the 1970s, the hotel was pretty much near closure. It was drab, unattractive, and partially dilapidated. Trump brought in the Hyatt Hotel chain, then entirely gutted the building. The hotel entrance, which had once been called the most beautiful lobby in the world, well, it was completely erased and covered in a glass facade with a contemporary new atrium in what Spy Magazine called Trump's obsession with, quote, striking contempo styling, unquote. The Grand Hyatt opened in 1980 to almost universal accolades, an entirely new building that literally reflected nearby Grand Central and its surface. By the way, Donald's date at that opening was his new wife, Ivana. Trump would expand that, quote, contempo styling with his next project, something he could really put his name to and put his name on. Up at the corner of 56th and 5th Avenue, right next door to Tiffany's, sat a very elegant department store, Bonwit Teller. Now, unfortunately for shoppers of this fine store, Trump desired that particular address. So he bought up the lease, 
knocked the building down, and replaced it with what some would call a masterpiece of 80s design called Trump Tower. Now, two things make the building really distinctive to New Yorkers. One of them is that accordion, jagged, sawtooth design on the southwest corner that steps up the southwest side of the building back and forth at regular intervals, the 28-sided building, they sometimes call it. The second distinctive feature, of course, is the name above the door in huge, thick gold letters, Trump. Trump Tower, designed by the developer's favorite architect, Driscutt, made use of new zoning laws which allowed for taller structures by gobbling up neighboring air rights and then creating enclosed public spaces. Inside Trump Tower was a shopping mall, restaurants, and a bar, all of it adorned in brass decoration and rose marble from northern Italy, the quarries of which were personally inspected by Ivana herself, reviewing the stone, climbing down like rope ladders and everything while she was seven months pregnant. I hope somebody was taking pictures that day. Now, the tower is everything that Donald Trump would embody in his later career. Flashy, overdone, perfectly aligned with the qualities of New York during the 1980s. At the top of the building, he placed a spectacular 53-room apartment, swathed in marble and decorated with waterfalls and a fresco. The apartments in Trump Tower were among the costliest in New York at the time, a huge badge of honor to Donald Trump, by the way. By the mid-80s, the name Trump had become synonymous with excessive luxury and wealth, and of course, mostly with spending. Trump would just keep on spending and develop new properties here and throughout the United States, luxury condominiums throughout Manhattan, three different casinos in Atlantic City, the Trump Taj Mahal, the Trump Plaza, and the Trump Marina. He bought landmarks like the Plaza Hotel, and then later in the 1990s, he bought famous old 40 Wall Street, the GM building in Columbus Circle, and at one point he even had a stake in the Empire State Building. Trump bought a chain of upscale clothing stores, a line of airplanes, which he renamed the Trump Shuttle. He bought a national football team and intended to build a stadium with his name on it. That kind of fell through. He made purchases like a massive yacht and a palatial home in Palm Beach. Along the way, his management of these luxe properties informed his 1987 best-selling biography, The Art of the Deal, and a slew of subsequent tomes on how to succeed in business. All this money bought lots of objects. Objects drew crowds, and crowds drew the media. According to Trump, quote, If I get my name in the papers, if people pay attention, that's what matters. To me, that means it's a success, unquote. You could almost say in the world's grandest understatement ever made that Donald Trump was maybe going a little bit over the top. Well, it tipped over in the early 90s as Trump's Atlantic City properties went bankrupt and massive veins of debt were exposed, debt that propped up the entire Trump empire. In 1990, Forbes magazine devalued him by half, and Trump was forced, forced, I tell you, to briefly adhere to an allowance of just $450,000 a month. A major development project in the mid-90s put Trump a little bit in turnaround, however, although it would involve an extraordinary concession on his part. Now, Penn Station, which I mentioned earlier, they owned another rail yard in New York. This one was along the west side, between 59th and 72nd Street. Donald had wanted to develop something massive there since the early 1970s. In 1985, he came up with something completely absurd. It was called Television City a project the size of Rockefeller Center 
and would have actually involved moving Rockefeller's tenant, NBC, into lavish new studios that were located along 13 blocks. This project would actually include a 150-story building, easily the tallest in New York, and all of that would be sitting on an elevated platform above a massive parking lot and a shopping center. This project would have literally made Robert Moses explode. But of course, such a massive production didn't fly with the residents of the neighborhood, and Trump soon agreed to a heavily compromised version with no NBC, of course. Because of his financial woes, Trump even sold his share of that property in 1994, but was actually kept on to oversee the new project and was paid quite well just to operate it. In the end, that name he so fiercely cultivated over the years as a symbol of status and wealth was actually worth more than his own bank account. Today, Riverside South, as it's called, with a prominent condo in it that's already built called Trump Place, is still in development. Trump himself, meanwhile, by this time, has become a full-stop promoter of his own brand. Today, it's honestly, it's difficult to walk down the street of New York without seeing some kind of gold-embossed Trump hanging off a building somewhere. But he doesn't actually own all the buildings that wear his name. He's now a designer brand himself, and he's hired to promote other properties. He continues to prune that brand with his children at the helm and through endeavors like The Apprentice, which started on NBC in 2004 and weekly features the facade of Trump Tower. Now, he's been careful over the years to draw attention away from some of the financial woes that still kind of reverberate through the unwieldy empire that he's created here. Now, of his various bids to run for public office, basically hinted at virtually every election cycle since 1987, but has been made more explicit, of course, in the past 10 years. Some say it's just a well-funded drive to keep that Trump brand name vibrant. This is a question that I think still remains unanswerable even to this day. In 2001, Trump satisfied his ultimate obsession with building size with the development of the Trump World Tower across the street from the United Nations building, and to the initial chagrin of the United Nations, in fact, at 72 floors, or as Trump likes to count them, 90 floors, it's one of the tallest residential buildings in the United States, and at one time held the most expensive apartments in New York City. All of this, of course, is a long ways away from the ambitions of his father, Fred Trump, and even further from the immigrant who first came to New York to work in a barber shop, from the basement to the penthouse in three generations. And that is my brief summary of the story of the Trump family. I'd like to recommend a book that sort of helped me frame the story here. Um, there's not a lot of works yet about the family, but I do recommend Gwenna Blair's book, The Trumps, Three Generations That Built an Empire. And of course, I do recommend taking a dip into Trump's old The Art of the Deal which is still in print and paperback. Now, you can visit our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, where, of course, I post a few times a week with other stories about New York City history. If you like what we do, please check us out on Facebook as well. We have a great community of people there who create their own discussions and post pictures and links and everything, and it's a fantastic group of people, and I thank all of you for participating, those who already do so. So Tom and I will be back with a duo show in two weeks. That's just around the corner. So thanks a lot for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts— 
to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.